Well, let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter 5. And I want to ask you to stand with me if you are willing and able as we are going to read the first uh, just five verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's listen to um, God's word to us through the Apostle Peter. He writes this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Would you be seated, please? I wonder if you were to uh, look back on your life and think about the people that have had a significant role in your life. Uh, what, what names would come to mind? Maybe a, a coach or a teacher, maybe a parent, uh, maybe somebody else. We rarely seem to notice in the moment, but when we pause to actually look back on our lives, it's, it's often very clear that God uses people in our lives to shape us into the people that he is calling us to be, um, that he's calling us to become. Well, we are approaching the end of First uh, Peter. Um, you made it to chapter 5. Congratulations. Uh, this is, I think, the 10th or 11th sermon. We've got one or two more. I haven't quite figured out <laughs> what I'm going to do the next couple of weeks. But don't worry, it'll be... <laughs> It, it'll be something. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, but what we've seen in this in this in this study in this series is that First Peter is really a a field manual for how to live the Christian life in the midst of a chaotic and anxious and often hostile culture. How do we how do we remain faithful to Jesus? What does it look like to live lives of faithfulness when circumstances are um, against us, against those who put their faith in, in Jesus. And so as Peter concludes his letter and his instructions to us, he goes in a direction that might seem strange. He goes in a direction of talking about leadership in the church. Uh, why, why does he do that? Why does he, after, you know, we've talked about suffering like six weeks in a row, why does he now shift gears and talk about um, elders and leadership? Well, I think that Peter knows that everything he has said up to this point, that we are sojourners and exiles in this world, that, that we uh, live as people who are holy, who are, who are different, that we're being built together as the church, that as we uh, live lives transformed by God's grace in this world, and as we as a result experience some measure of suffering in this world, that we cannot do that alone, that we need courageous and competent leaders, people who um, will protect us, people who will lead by example, people who will uh, speak wisdom into our lives. We cannot do this alone. God calls us together as his people, as the church, and so we need leaders. 
I have to uh, acknowledge this is a strange passage to be preaching on for me this morning. It's always a little bit weird as a pastor to preach on leadership or eldership in the church because in some ways I'm talking about myself, but it hits me especially this week uh, knowing that my time as your pastor is, is drawing to a close. And yet in God's providence, this is where we are in this, in this passage, and we want to take God's word as it comes to us and, and trust that he's going to use it as we go forward. So as Peter wraps up his letter, he shows us what Christian leadership looks like and what our response ought to be towards those that God calls to be leaders in his church. Uh, so three things that I, I want to kind of unpack for you this morning. And the first is this, why do we need leaders? Why do we need leadership? Um, we just have to begin by acknowledging, I think, that we come at this topic with some amount of skepticism. Um, we are very suspicious of anybody with authority in our, in our culture. And the reality is that we can all think of people who have misused their authority, misused their power, um, and have been exposed and have fallen from grace. And we can all point to um, people we know in positions of leadership who are doing what we think is a bad job. And so we bring a lot of skepticism. Um, we resist this idea of leadership. Why do we need leadership at all? Um, I think to understand why we need leadership, the first thing we have to do is just look at the immediate context of what Peter is talking about here. Uh, he has just said that we live as people who are transformed by the grace of God, and that means we are swimming against the, uh, uh, you know, we are, not, we are going against the flow of our culture. And as God transforms us by his grace, Living in a brutal world, we will experience all kinds of suffering. That's what he has just said. And then if you were to look at the next few verses, the next thing Peter says in, in the, verses 6 through like 8, he says, uh, the devil, Satan, uh, roams like a, prowls around like a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We're going to talk about this next week. I know we don't tend to think about the devil um, they don't talk about the devil on like NPR or uh, CNN, right? Um, but but the Bible takes very seriously that there, you have an adversary who would seek to destroy you, and one of the ways that he does that is by dividing the people of God. And so we need leaders. God gives good leaders to protect and defend us, and also to model for us what maturity looks like in the Christian life. On a very practical level, the health of the church depends on healthy leaders. But there's, there's still something about this that we don't like. And, and the idea of somebody having authority over us um, just rubs us the wrong way. Because in our culture, we've gotten to the point where the highest value in our culture is freedom. And the, the tragedy of that is that our culture has, has a misunderstood definition of freedom. Our, our, our culture has misunderstood what freedom actually is. Uh, it's completely wrong. Our culture thinks that freedom means being able to do whatever we want. And so we, def we kind of resist leadership almost by definition because leadership implies that there's somebody who has authority who is going to lead me, which we feel like is a violation of our freedom. The problem, however, is not with leadership. The problem is with our definition of freedom. 
because we have misunderstood freedom, we are going to misunderstand leadership. Because freedom in the Bible isn't freedom uh, from something. It's not freedom um, from restraint. It's freedom for something. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living instead as servants of God. He says, You are free in Christ. You are free from sin and death. You are free from being a slave to your passions or your desires. Uh, you are free like a, you know, immaturity is needing to do whatever we feel. And maturity is freedom from our passions. Um, because we are free from sin and death, you are free from your desires. And so Peter says you are free not uh, simply from constraint, but you are free for service. You are free in order to serve God and to serve others. If we misunderstand what freedom is, we're going to misunderstand what leadership is all about. But if we understand that freedom means the freedom to give ourselves away for something bigger than ourselves, then, then leadership makes a ton of sense. If we understand that freedom means giving ourselves to the good of our neighbor, then we see that the Bible actually critiques the, the misuse of leadership that we rightly push back against. I mean, did you notice in these passages that Peter critiques leadership that is domineering? He critiques leaders who just are just going through the motions, are just doing it out of compulsion or out of duty. And he critiques what we all, I think, rightly know, that he, he critiques those who show up for church leadership because of what they get out of it. Of course leadership can be abused, but just because something has been misused doesn't mean that we get rid of it altogether. What, what this passage is leading us into is this reality that if we're going to do something that is hard, that is complicated, that requires intention and coordination, we are going to need somebody to lead us. We will need leadership. My friend uh, David Richman um, quoted, I heard him quote a uh, passage out of a book, a book called Up With Authority, uh, kind of a popular leadership book talking about the goodness of authority in a world that hates the idea of authority. And um, this is what the author says. He says, Does a musician lose his freedom when he plays as his conductor directs? He does lose his ability to play in any way which he might choose, but is that truly a loss of freedom? True, a trombonist might play any number of solos without recognizing an authority outside of himself. And he might play those solos very well, and we might even pay money to go and hear him, but even the best trombonist in the world cannot play a Beethoven symphony by himself. Without a th the authority of a conductor, that symphony could never be possible or even heard. By acknowledging the conductor's authority, a great expression of freedom is possible. There is more music that the trombonist is now free to play. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> and obvious as soon as we think about it. If we're all just going to do our own thing, then we don't need to listen to anybody. In the church, and really in any area of life, working together means that we cannot simply just do it our own way. Have it the way that we want, when we want it, all the time that we want it that way. If we insist on doing everything according to our own preferences, our own desires, our own whims, all of the time what we have is not chaos. Can you imagine the orchestra just 
everybody playing randomly, whatever they feel like. Uh, that's not beauty, that's chaos. And so God calls us all to follow our chief shepherd, who is Jesus. And he calls us to, uh, he calls some of us to lead in the church, and he calls all of us to follow those who lead, so that by surrendering something, we might do something greater and more beautiful together. Friends, the reality is this. Jesus' biggest concern for his church. I mean, do you know the thing that Jesus prayed about fervently in the moments before his arrest, before going to the cross? He prayed for you and me, and he prayed for our unity. He prayed that we might be one even as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And the reality is we are now living through a time, you all know this, that is incredibly polarized, where people are yelling at each other constantly. It's an orchestra where everybody wants to have it their own way. And if God's people are going to bring the peace of Christ into the world, we are going to have to recover this beautiful concept of leadership in the church. We're going to have to learn how to listen to each other and work together and follow those God has called to lead. Okay, that's why leadership matters in the church. That's the why, but secondly, I want you to see the what. Um, What does Christian leadership look like? So the word that the Bible uses for leaders in the church is the word elder. Um, And the idea of an elder, it comes from the Old Testament. Uh, There are many places in the Old Testament talk about the elders of the tribes of Israel. Probably the best example is in the book of Exodus, after Moses has led the people of Israel out of slavery um, through the Red Sea, and they're in the wilderness, and Moses is beginning to just become overwhelmed by people bringing problems to him all day long. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, pulls him aside and says, If you continue doing this, you're going to kill yourself. So here's what you need to do. You need to recognize the elders in all of the tribes and let the elders deal with the the people's various needs, to oversee the various needs of the people. And really, we see the main thing that we see elders doing in the Old Testament is they steward their wisdom for the sake of others. I mean, just the word elder implies somebody who has some measure of life experience, some measure of wisdom. But elders are called to steward that for the sake of others. And so the main thing that you see elders doing in the Old Testament is when um, somebody had a problem or when there was like a business dispute between neighbors, you would go out to the city gate where the elders would gather. And you would sit down before the elders and you would both sides would tell your story to the elders. And the elders would listen, and then they would present a just uh, solution to your problem. They would settle the matter justly. And so in the New Testament, as churches begin to be planted throughout the Roman Empire and beyond, the church begins to recognize elders as the leaders in each congregation. And one of the signs of a, of a healthy church, of an established mature church, is that uh, it's a church that has um, recognized its own, its own elders. There's a couple places in the Bible that talk about the characteristics that are necessary for elders. In 1 Timothy uh, and in the book of Titus, 
uh, Paul gives instructions about um, the characteristics of those who are to be recognized as elders. But here, what Paul, uh, what Peter tells us is that there are two things that the elders do. Uh, Paul talks more about their characteristics. Here, um, Peter talks more about the what. Um, verses 1 and 2, see if you can hear, catch these two things that, that, that Peter says that elders do. Um, really, verse 2, I guess, he says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And he goes on. Shepherd the flock of God. Exercise oversight. The two things that God calls leaders in the church to do. What does that mean? Um, well, let's look at it. Firstly, um, shepherd the flock of God. Uh, the Bible's always using these like agrarian metaphors <laughs> that few of us really have firsthand experience with, but um, the idea of shepherding the flock of God, I think we can understand, is is this idea that we are sheep. And uh, like sheep, we spend most of our time following our appetites. I mean, if you, have you ever thought about this? Most of our time is spent looking for our next meal <laughs> and the stuff that we do as we prepare for our next meal. That's what sheep do. And sometimes their appetites lead them astray, lead them into danger, um, often without much awareness of what's going on around us. And so for sheep to um, not just survive, but to flourish, they need a shepherd. They need somebody who's paying attention, who's looking at the dangers that, that the sheep will be unaware of. Um, they need someone who will lead them to places where they can find food to eat. They need someone who will corral them and gather them back together and go find them when they run off and carry them back uh, shepherding is both a tender job, but it also involves picking up sheep and taking them to a place that they are not inclined to go naturally. And that's a pretty good description, I would say, of ministry as well. We know that in the most famous psalm in the Old Testament, God himself, uh, God is described as a, as a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus, in John uh, 10, I think, described himself as the good shepherd who, whose sheep recognize his voice. And so this means a lot of things. It means that leaders, elders, pastors, um, it means that we love you and that we care for you. It means that we... Um, we are concerned about you, that we carry a weight, a burden. Um, I think Paul says um, somewhere that uh, as he's listing his, um, his kind of resume of bad things or, or, you know, of sufferings in his life, struggles in his life, one of the things he mentions is his daily anxiety for the churches. Um, this is what it means to be a shepherd, an elder. Uh, but it also means that, that, that those God calls to lead in his church are sheep too. That we're all following the, the chief shepherd that Peter mentions here. But we are at best under shepherds. We are sheep. We, we wander as well. We are not perfect. So elders are shepherds. But Paul or Peter also says that Elders exercise oversight. 
And um, this is talking about kind of knowing where we're going. This is talking more about what we probably traditionally think of as leadership in, um, yeah, in the world. Um, he, he's talking about governance. He's talking about making decisions. Um, he's talking about using wisdom. And what I, what I think we need to see is that oversight and shepherding go together in, in, in the way that God talks about leadership. Um, shepherds, elders are both those who shepherd, but also who govern or who, who give oversight. But the reason that we care about an elder's governance opinion when it comes to making decisions is because they're thoroughly immersed in the life of people because of the work of shepherding. Leaders in the church are shepherds. And I think we can hear in this passage, um, you know, what what echoes of, of Peter's own experience. It, it's really interesting, I think, to read First and Second Peter, and even to see Peter in the book of Acts, because we see like a snapshot of Peter, well, especially in, in, in his epistles in First and Second Peter. Um, that if you didn't know better, you might think of him as a totally different person than the Peter of the Gospels. Uh, Peter is kind of the chief um, apostle in the church in Jerusalem, is in such a contrast with Peter in the Gospels, because Peter in the Gospels is such a screw-up. I mean, Peter, as a leader, (laughs) was a total failure. Uh, Think about the number of times Peter just totally blew it. Um, you know, there's, there's the moment in the Gospels where Jesus turns to his followers and says, uh, who do the people say I am? And, and, the, and the, the, the apostles or the disciples are telling him, well, some say you're a great teacher. Um, you know, people are saying all these things about you, Jesus. And then, and then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the, you're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus responds by saying, Peter Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The reason that you know that is because you have received a revelation from God. And then immediately, the next thing that happens, um, Jesus has to turn around and rebuke Peter. And he says, to, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he's just said, Peter, you've had a revelation from God. And then, he, and then he's saying, you're the, you're the devil with skin on. I mean, he's just, he's all over the place, um, Peter is. He's impulsive. Um, as he goes to the cross, Jesus predicts that Peter is going to deny Jesus three times. And Peter says, never, it's never going to happen. And then when the... Um, when the, when the people come to arrest Jesus, Peter is so eager to defend Jesus that he pulls out a sword and he cuts off a guy's ear. He's so zealous to defend Jesus. And then hours later, as Jesus is being tried in this illegal overnight trial, there's a young slave girl who sees Peter and hears his accent and says, oh, you must have been with Jesus because you have a Galilean accent. And Peter says, what are you saying? I don't even know this man. What are you talking about? And he goes on to deny Jesus three times. He's all over the place. He's a, he's a total mess. But then the beautiful thing that happens in John 21 after the resurrection, um, you know, I mean, think about what happens to Peter after Jesus is crucified. 
why is Jesus why is Peter so quick to deny Jesus? It's because he had no category for a Messiah who was going to save his people by dying for them, by suffering for them. And so Peter is convinced when Jesus is crucified, Peter is convinced that he has wasted his life, that he's made an embarrassment of himself. And so what does Peter do? He goes back to his old job. He starts fishing again. And there he is a few days after the resurrection, and he's fishing. He's on a boat. And as he's fishing, he sees Jesus on the shore. He's cooking breakfast. And Peter again jumps out of the boat. And he makes his way to Jesus. And he says, and it says that Jesus is cooking fish. And Jesus uh, feeds, I think, Peter and James and John breakfast. And it says that they ate together and they recognized that it was Jesus. And then there, Jesus, he talks to Peter. And and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. And Jesus says, then tend my sheep. And Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's getting offended. And he says, of course, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. And he restores this failure of a leader by giving him this job, by saying, you're now going to be a shepherd. And your job is to give oversight and to tend my wayward sheep. It's beautiful because Peter is such a mess and he's so much like us. You know, Peter would never get elected to be an elder in any church today. Um, (laughs) You know, how many times have you publicly denied Jesus? Peter's like, three all right, go. You're not in this anymore. Right? We would never vote for him. He would not pass his ordination exams. In our world, um, what we need to see is that we look for leaders who are successful and charismatic and have as little experience with failure as possible. But Jesus only chooses leaders who are failures. In fact, part of the task of leadership in the church is to just daily be humbled, (laughs) daily admit your failure. What does Jesus ask Peter? He doesn't say, Peter, how are you going to do this now? (laughs) He doesn't say, uh, Peter, do you have the skill set necessary to lead my people. He says, Peter, do you love me? That's the qualification that Jesus asks of Peter. What Peter says about himself in verse 1, he says that, he says, I'm a fellow elder and a fellow witness of the sufferings of Christ. That's what qualifies Peter. I have been a witness to the suffering of Jesus and have remained faithful. 
do you love me? Jesus asks him. This is what elders do. This is what leaders do. Finally, what's the response of, uh, of those of us who are called to follow, which is all of us in, in, in one way, shape, or form, isn't it? Uh, what about specifically those who aren't elders, though, who aren't in positions of leadership? Peter says this in verse 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, he he said he basically in this passage if you if you notice he says there are kind of two kinds of people there are elders and there are those who are younger and it's it's not super clear if Peter is talking about if he means younger meaning like are you is he referring to people who are younger in age or younger in the faith I think it's he's making this distinction you're either elder or younger and so the, the, those who are younger are are just those who aren't elders. And his instruction is clear. He says, be subject to the elders, submit to the elders. Now, I know there's this word again, submit, um, that we don't like. But listen, everything, um, given everything Peter has said here about elders, um, and, and the instruction that he's given about how elders lead, we need to listen to what he says about how we are to follow those God calls to lead. Peter is saying this, I think. It's less about elders always getting their way. It's more about the reality that we are not always going to agree with one another. The reality of life in a broken world is that life is going to be messy. And God has called us into the church to to do life together. And we're going to hurt each other. And we're going to let each other down. And I'm going to offend you, and you're going to offend me, and we're going to make plans, and we're not all going to agree on them. The Bible is acknowledging all of these as given realities. And the question is, therefore, how will the church love one another when we don't all agree? Jesus' answer, Peter's answer here is we have to be humble. We have to acknowledge that just as a conductor leads an orchestra, God has called elders and pastors to lead his church. Sometimes it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's not a matter of how you would do it or how the best way that you think it should be done. It's a matter of simply following those God has called to lead. Life in a fallen world is messy and we're never going to agree on everything. And that's why we have leaders. The surprising thing in the church is not that people are a mess. You know, the surprising thing is that when people are a mess, we forgive. That's what makes us different than the world. What makes us different is that we follow our leaders even when we would have done something differently if we had the ability to make the decision for ourselves. And then Peter finishes this section with these words. And, and he says that he, he means this to everybody, elders and youngers, leaders and other everyone. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Friends, the, the question that I want to leave you with is what would it take for the church to be the church in this moment that we are living through? What would it take for the church to be an agent of peace in the midst of a world that is losing its mind? Jesus seems to care far more about our humility than how right we are. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He never says that we are the way, the truth, and the life. But he instructs us over and over and over again to be humble. Because Jesus is, is right. Jesus is right on our behalf. Jesus is the one who is righteous. And in his life and his death and in his resurrection, he lives and he dies and he raises again on our behalf. And that's what makes us right. Peter talks about um, the motivation for Christian leadership is to receive the unfading crown of glory. And what he's doing is he, he's saying what he's been saying all along in this book, that as you and I follow Jesus in this crazy world, the goal is that our lives more and more look like the life of Christ. That though we may suffer for a little while, we will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's not just a wish. That is an absolute certainty. Our lives are characterized by his life. And that makes us both bold and yet incredibly humble. And that's what God is calling his people to be in this time that we're living in. Would you pray with me? God, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for um, sometimes just the simplicity and clarity of what you're saying. And God, I pray that uh, you would be with us as we uh, seek to follow Jesus, our chief shepherd. God, would you be with Resurrection OC as we enter into a, a new stage, a, a, a new moment as a church where we don't know at all what the future holds. Would you shepherd us? God, I pray that as you shepherd us, that um, that you would give us the grace and the humility to be the people that you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.